Welcome to Atomic Moms, a modern parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our children and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and since 2014, I've been celebrating and commiserating with New York Times bestselling authors like today, experts, and listeners around the world. All right, mamas, today we are stirring up trouble. We're talking about an education revolution. Thank God my six-month-old Eliza's napping again because it meant I had the opportunity to finish reading You, Your Child, and School, Navigating Your Way to the Best Education, written by Sir Ken Robinson and Lou Aronica. By the way, everyone, I keep wanting to say Lou Erotica. I had to practice that one. (laughs) So anyway, I am all riled up. But before we get started, I have to brag about our guest today. So here's a little uh, Cliff's Notes version of his bio. Sir Ken Robinson is the most watched speaker in TED's history. His 2006 talk, Do Schools Kill Creativity, has been viewed online over 40 million times. Here's a moment from that talk. And our task is to educate their whole being so they can face this future. By the way, we may not see this future, but they will. And our job is to help them make something of it. In 1999, he led a national commission on creativity, education, and the economy for the UK government. He was the central figure in developing a strategy for creative and economic development as part of the peace process in Northern Ireland, working with the ministers for training, education, enterprise, and culture. In 2003, he received a knighthood from Queen Elizabeth II for his service to the arts. Sir Ken Robinson is also the New York Times bestselling author of Creative Schools and the Element. So, mamas... Uh, please help me in welcoming Sir Ken Robinson. It's a great pleasure, Alice. Thank you very much for having me. I'd like to kick off this podcast with the doom and gloom portion of this episode. So uh, let's start off with how is the education system failing our children? I have a four-year-old, and we're trying to figure out kindergarten and beyond. And so now I have this new stomach ache that I didn't have when, uh, you know, like even a year ago. But now it's it's becoming a reality. Like we're going to have to figure out where she goes to school and what fits best. So what do I do? Well, tell me first, Sally, what, what, why have you got a stomachache now that you didn't have a few years ago? Because there are choices, right? Um, we could go the public school option. We're really fortunate that we could do public school in our neighborhood or we could start looking at all the private schools. And it just starts to feel overwhelming because I'm not sure what's best. I want my daughter to experience diversity. I went to a public elementary school and I loved it. I'm afraid that the private schools in L.A. are really super competitive within the student body. And I guess I'm trying to figure out which kind of culture, which environment would be best for her to thrive in. You know, the reason I ask you is because... I wrote the book in response to what is becoming, I think, a kind of global stomachache for parents about education. You're perfectly right about it. These days, education has become a minefield for a lot of parents. One issue is choice. Uh, Some people do have choices like that. Uh, You know, if you have a good public school in the area, that's great. Um, Sometimes people don't. Uh, if you they look at private options, you know, which are expensive and they're very, very varied. In America, you may have a choice of a charter school, and some people think that charter schools are inevitably better. They're really not. Some are great, and some aren't. But on top of the choice issue, 
I know a lot of parents are worried about the pressures on their kids these days, particularly from testing. It's especially true, I think, in America, but it's not only here, where education seems to many people to become a, a kind of continuous steeplechase of testing. You know, when you know when I was at school, and I guess when you were, the, you know, there were tests that they happened from time to time, and there were some that were more important than others. But nowadays, kids seem to face a constant cycle of testing, and you know, people are talking now seriously about testing four-year-olds. And I, I think we've, we've gone mad a bit with, with all of this. And, um, and on top of that, uh, schools are under an awful lot of pressure to narrow the curriculum in all kinds of ways. A lot of schools in America are cutting back on recess. Uh, they're getting rid of physical education programs. Arts programs are being cut back. So there are all kinds of reasons why these changes are happening. A lot of them are political. Uh, most schools around uh, countries around the world are reforming their school systems, and it's largely, I have to say, for economic reasons. But the upshot of it is that the schooling for a lot of parents has become a bit of a nightmare. You know, where do you put your child? What what is a good school? How do you know a good school when you see it? Uh, what can you do as a parent to make sure that education is of the sort that really is going to benefit your child in particular? So that's why I wrote the book because I kept being asked about it by parents and. Uh, what I've tried to do in the book is to say, well, what, you know, why, what is it all for? You know, all these hours and years that are spent in school from often very early days to, to, to mid to late teens. These are the formative years for our kids. And it's very important, I think, that parents get involved in the conversation. And I think there are a couple of levels to it. One of them is, yeah, you need to look at your own child. I mean, who is she and, and what do you want for her? But there's also a collective power that parents can have to try and change the conversation around education. And I think it's important that they join in. I am kind of getting the feeling that you're a big fan of Montessori. I mean, you don't outright <laughs> say that, but like you kind of keep bringing up Montessori <laughs> as an option. And when we were looking at preschools, she has a lot of energy. And there were other children in the Montessori parent and me class that had a lot of energy and they chose other schools. Do you think that if a child doesn't seem naturally inclined for that, that, that that might mean that they should be in a program like that? Or do you think that it means they shouldn't? Does that make any sense? I'm going on the fly now because I personally just want to know the answer to this. I have like written out questions, but, but like. This makes do, sense. This is great though. I'm happy if you keep answering your own questions. Okay. I think this, <laughs> no, but generally, it's something we do have to. No, I'll tell you, how many children have you got, Ellie? I have a six month old and a four and a half year old. Okay. Well, you know, we have two. I mean, I was a bit older than that now. I was a 33 and 28, you know, but um, we went through these exact same dilemmas when they were younger. I mean, the pressures are a bit different then, I have to say, but let me answer your question straight out about Montessori. Uh, Montessori schools can be fantastic. Um, I'm, not a, I'm not on commission for Montessori. I, you know, I'm not involved formally <laughs> with Montessori. Uh, just, just so you know, you know, I'm, I'm not getting paid to promote them. But here's the thing. I'll tell you why I think they're good. And they're not the only, that's not the only approach that's good. But when it comes to education, uh, you have to think, what, what is it you want for your child? You see, the reason I ask you, if you how many children you've got, uh, uh, let me ask mm -hmm. anybody who's listening to the podcast. I know there are lots of mums and, and families out there listening. Uh, if, if you've got two children, you, know, you or anybody listening, if you've got two children or more, I will make you a bet, and I will win the bet. I'm confident because <laughs> I can't lose it. But my bet is that your two children are completely different from each other. And, and if you think of your own siblings, I don't mean to say they've got nothing in common. I mean, I've got, I'm one of seven children, 
uh, we've got two. And of course, I'm like my brothers and my sister in some respects, but you'd never mistake us for each other. You'd never, as your kids grow up, you know, get confused about which is which. Every child that's born is unique. We, we're born with immense natural capacities and talents and, and possibilities. The best example I always think of for this is how children learn to speak. You know, children, when they come into the world, they're not a blank sheet. They're, they're graced with all kinds of powers and possibilities. And one of the most important ones is in, in the first few years of life, they learn to speak. And that's an extraordinary thing when you think about it. And nobody teaches them to do it because nobody really could. I mean, you, don't te- you didn't teach your four-year-old to speak because you don't know how to do it either, really. You don't know well, how you do it. Well, clearly, listen to the podcast. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> but seriously, I'm from Liverpool. I mean, nobody would ever... <laughs> <laughs> what I mean is, you know, you don't sit down, you don't sit your child down at the age of 18 months and say, look, we need to talk, you know, and then explain right. to them how language works. They just, they take it in through their mm-hmm. skin. They absorb it because children are immensely curious and that they are avid learners. And if they grow up in a household, as I'm sure many of the parents listening here uh, would agree, if a child grows up in a household where two or three or even four languages are spoken, they learn all of them just effortless, effortlessly because we can. So, you know, there's been an old debate for a long time, not just in education, but in childcare generally about the relationship between nature and nurture. You know, which, which is the more important, the, the, the genetic uh, sort of imprint, so to speak, with which individuals are born or the circumstances in which they grow. And it's pretty clear that it's about 50-50. I think that's where the consensus is. You know, if children grow up, in a, a Spanish-speaking household, they learn Spanish. They don't spontaneously start speaking Norwegian you know, against <laughs> all the trend. If, and I give a couple of examples in the book of feral children. If, if yes. There are examples of kids who've grown up away from human contact. You know, they've grown up, a couple of examples there, with, with, uh, with wolves, I mean, literally so, or with, with dogs. And they don't suddenly start you know, speaking as if they're from Brooklyn. They, 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 they actually don't speak at all. I mean, they, they end up barking. I mean, beautifully, I have to tell you. <laughs> wonderful job of it but but what I mean is these potentials that we have have to be developed and evolved and encouraged and cultivated uh, it's like we all have a capacity for music but we don't all end up playing instruments because we're not exposed to the opportunity for that so the relation it, it's not about nature or nurture it's either it's not either or it, it's both and and how they connect to each other now this is important because um the education we offer our children is one of the most sustained and organized ways in which we should be aiming to cultivate these natural abilities and talents and propensities. And the reason, one of the reasons I've written the book is I think education has become far too narrow, on, too, too focused on a certain type of um, academic ability. It's too sedentary. And, you know, we educate kids in groups, but, but not as groups. If you think of it, your child, you know, your six-month-old, over the course of the next 15, 16 years, is going to undergo an extraordinary metamorphosis physically. She's going to change and evolve and go from being a, a, a little dependent baby to an independent semi-adult. She's going to change physically, mentally, cognitively. She's going to learn all kinds of things. Emotionally, she'll change and mature. Um, she'll change spiritually in the sense of finding you know, some purpose in her life. These, this is what happens with human beings. It's a very complicated and rather beautiful process of growth and development. But it needs you know, a form of education. Our children need forms of education which encourage all of these areas. So uh, the reason, one of the reasons I 
you know, have come to like the work of Montessori is, well, firstly, that she was dealing with very difficult children uh, at the turn of the last century in Italy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she was a trained doctor and she figured out, and it's an important insight, that helping people grow is, it's, it's not exactly the expression she uses, but it's like making plants grow. It's why, for example, Freeboard developed what were called kindergartens. You know, it's literally a garden for children where you create conditions for growth. I always think the analogy with gardening is a good one. You know, the gardeners don't make a plant grow. They don't stick the roots on and paint the leaves and and attach the petals. Plants grow themselves. Good gardeners create the conditions for that. So you want education which creates beneficial conditions for growth, you know, cognitively, emotionally, spiritually, and socially. And Montessori figured that out with their own system. So the Montessori system isn't narrowly confined to particular age groups. They, they work across ages. It's, it's, it has a very physical component. There's a lot of activity. Uh, it encourages the growth of creativity and imagination. And it's a very social process. Now, the reason I, I talked a bit about Montessori in the book is not because I think she has a monopoly on these things, but it's a well-known approach that, that employs fundamental principles, which I think we should be applying to all of our children in school. We should be looking at our children holistically, And there's a long tradition of people who would support and agree with that. Absolutely. To continue with your metaphor of gardening with our children, can you speak to our listeners a little bit about how we would like our schools to be more like organic gardening versus, you know, just like a horrible GMO, like industrialized (laughs) awful system? How, let's say we don't have Montessori in the area. Like where, yeah. let's say our, our children are going to the public school. Yeah. Oh, and, and, and by the way, as I say, um, Montessori is a very famous example of this. And I would say to people, if, if they're thinking of sending their child to a Montessori school, then go and see the school. Go yes. and check it out. And, and, and see, it, it, meet the actual teacher, right? Because they're all so different meet too. The teacher. Yeah, that's right. It, 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 this is a human system. It's not, not a car wash. You know, so you need, <laughs> you, need, you need to go and meet the people doing it because pe- people are, you know, are better and worse at whatever they do. And so you want to see, you want a good example of, of how this works. You don't want it to be doctrinaire. You want it to be flexible. You know, she set down the methodology and a set of principles. There are others, you know, there are, you know, the, the, the work of Freebill, say, led to a, a growth in, 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 um, in kindergartens. You know, there's Steiner Waldorf schools. They all have their own approach. But there are many public schools you know, state schools, which employ very similar principles. And in fact, there are also some, uh, a couple of uh, public Montessori schools. So it isn't just all about Montessori that I'm arguing for, right. but I'm saying it embodies principles, which I think uh, should be encouraged and applauded wherever children are growing and learning. So, yeah, the, 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 there are a couple of layers to this. One of them is that, you know, when, when people talk about getting back to basics in education, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I think that's exactly what we should do. We should look at uh, look, look first as, as a parent, look at your own child and, and at how your child is, is similar to other children uh, and how your child is unique. And I say in the book, there's a big difference between learning, education and school. And learning is, is the, the central bit of this. Kids love to learn. They absolutely delight in it. They're deeply curious in the moment they're born. Um, education you know, learning is a natural process of acquiring new skills and understanding. And we do it all the time. Uh, education is a more organized approach to learning where we, you know, agree to set out some sort of more particular object- objectives maybe or some particular content. The most 
sustained process of education most people are exposed to is the is the K-12 system that in most of our countries operates often on broadly similar lines. Um, a lot of kids have some problems with education. They don't always like the way they're being taught. They don't always like uh, you know, the, the, what they're having to learn. So, but, you know, but that's that's a whole set of other questions. A lot of kids don't get on well with school. Now, I'm not arguing against school, but uh, I, I think schools have a very important role in children's development. But you have to be clear what we mean by a school. I, I think of a school just as a community of learners. And in a way, people listening to your podcast are part of a school now. It's people mm-hmm. learning with and from each other. You, you know, you can have a, a school at, at, at the side of a hill. You can have a school in a car park. You can have a school anywhere. Anywhere people come together to learn with and from each other is a school. It's a community of learners. The problem, I think, is how we've come to do school. We've come to think of schools as particular types of institutions, particular sorts of places. You know, if you think of high school, probably people think of long corridors with lockers in and a gymnasium somewhere. Oh, my God. I think of fluorescent uh, lights. (laughs) That's good. Exactly right. Yeah. And rows of desks. They're not all like that, but that's the sort of image that comes to mind. Um, The thing is, schools have evolved this way relatively recently. They came about in the... You know, the mid to late 19th century as part of the growth of mass education systems. And they grew up as part of the Industrial Revolution. And schools from that point of view share some characteristics with industrialism. I don't want to overtax the metaphor, but, but you think of it. For example, you know, we educate children. Uh, we start them at a particular age and we, they go through the system by age group. Now, that seems obvious to most people, but it really isn't obvious at all. I mean, why on earth do we do that? Because we know that kids mature at different rates individually. We know kids are better at some things than others at different ages. Uh, we also know that outside schools, we don't segregate people by age. You know, once kids leave school at the end of the day, we don't send all the eight-year-olds off to a separate compound and keep them clear of the 13-year-olds in case <laughs> dreadful things happen. It's just something we do in school, and it's, it's an efficiency model. It's nothing to do with mm. learning. In fact, on the contrary, it creates problems because some kids end up starting the school year two at you know much earlier or later than other people because they happen to fall into the same age group, and and then suddenly the kid turns out to be the problem, uh, or they they're in a in an age group where they're they're a bit behind or a bit ahead of the average, and so they're held back or pushed forward. And in other words, the system creates the problem. We organize schools into separate subjects. The world isn't organized into separate subjects at all. It's only schools that do that. Um, so what I mean is that, and then we test people remorselessly. We sit them down for hours on end. We break the day up into 40-minute bits and keep ringing bells at people. You know, <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, <laughs> do you know what I mean? You don't choose to do that at home, do you? And, oh, my and God, it, no. And it, I was, when I was reading your book, I was just thinking about how miserable it would be to have to go back into that. Like, oh. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Exactly. And then, and then we blame the kids. We say, well, you know, you just have to get on with it. You know, I was, I was, saying, I was talking to a business conference recently and I said, if you were obliged to run your business like this, you know, if you organized your entire workforce by age group and then, if, and then right. you broke the day up into 40 minute bits and pieces and rang a bell every 40 minutes, that people had to drop what they were doing, go to some other part of the building and do something else entirely for 40 minutes, you'd be bankrupt in a week. Yes. Um, so, so what I mean is that schools... 
I'm not, I'm not blaming individual schools for this or, or teachers. It's I mean, the I, system. I spend my life working in education, but the system creates the problem. We have and to change the you... system, Sir Robinson. <laughs> we have to change yes, the system. change the system. That's why I'm talking about the revolution. Yes. You have to change the system. You don't need to change kids. You need to change the system yes. that's not getting through to them. And, and like in America, for example, it's something like 20, 25, it depends on the district. Often, often, you know, in some cases, over 30% of kids who start the ninth grade don't complete the 12th grade. And I don't like to call them dropouts because I think, you know, if you're a business and you lost 30% of your customers every year, you might wonder whether it was these stupid customers or, or your business model, you know. And <laughs> kids want to learn. And yes. we need... We need communities where they will learn and where they can learn. And so the analogy I make in the book is that, that yeah, we've developed schools a bit along these sort of factory lines. And the, the real analogy, I think, is not industrial manufacturing. It's more like industrial agriculture. And I think we need a more organic approach. Now, I don't say that just because I happen to live in California. I mean, I, I thought that before I came here, you know, that that human beings are natural evolving creatures. You know, we're dealing with actual people, your children, yes. your actual children. We're not dealing oh. with data points or league tables. We're dealing with your growing child. And as a parent, you try to create the best conditions at home that you can to give them love and support and encouragement, help them face the challenges and grow into the best person you, you hope they're going to be. And that's what we should be doing in schools. And, and the good schools do that. That's my point. So when you're looking for a good school, you ask, ask yourself, ask, well, what is a good school? And a good school is not just one that has high test results and a high percentage of people going to Ivy League universities. You know, there are other qualities and features of a great school. And again, that's something I try to explain in the book. Okay, so with the testing culture, I want you to go a little bit on a profiteering rant. Like you, with the <laughs> testing culture, you write that it has soaked up billions of taxpayer dollars with no mm. real improvement in standards. So let's yeah. say my... Little Sabrina is in school, and I'm seeing that she's just being tested again and again and again. <sighs> what do I say to the teacher or the principal? Can I opt out of the testing? Would that hurt her future? And also, what do you say to proponents of school testing who might be like, well, this is how we find out if they've learned anything? Well, look, I, I, I'm not myself against all forms of testing. That's the first thing. Uh, I mean, some tests are very helpful. You know, I mean, if you, uh, I was saying recently, if I if I go to for a medical exam and to find out what the state of my my health is, I do want some tests, and I prefer <laughs> them to be standardised tests. You know, yeah. If I'm having my cholesterol checked, right. I'd like to know what it is according to a standard scale. I don't want my doctor to invent something they made up in the car. You know, like, I don't know. Sir Robinson, uh, we are in California. There are a lot of doctors like that too. <laughs> like they just get a feeling. <laughs> you, you can find those doctors. That's true. You know, you know, but I don't want my doctor saying you know, your cholesterol is what I call level orange. I mean, right. no, I mean. <laughs> well, it's your what aura. What is your... <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, that can be another helpful approach. Right, you know, sure. But, but, but when it comes to, you know, diagnostic um, information that that's very important. You know, there are some things I know I can do, some things I, know I can't do. And uh, you know, I mean, in music, for example, you know, there are all kinds of tests. Some of them are, are, are very helpful. It depends how they administered, truthfully. You know, but it's not to say that testing is inherently bad and that we don't need information. It always helps to have good information, uh, particularly if you're trying to encourage development. The problems I have with testing are, firstly, that 
the testing system in many, as we're in America, let's just talk about America for a moment. I know you have listeners outside of America, but in America, when the legislation was passed um, about almost 20 years ago now called No Child Left Behind, it required schools to administer regular tests to children in, in maths and, and languages and sciences at different points in their, their career at school. Um, and the idea was that this would give us a kind of baseline information to help everybody uh, rise their, their highest levels of achievement. Well, it's nice theory, but it didn't work that way because the testing procedures were handed over to the private sector here in America. And now the testing companies are turning collectively uh, billions of dollars a year of taxpayers' money into an endless parade of tests. And the when I say it's had no impact, there's an international league table called, that, that's produced through a process called PISA, the Program of International Student Assessment. Uh, and America's position on these international league tables hasn't improved in the slightest over the whole period of these billions of dollars of money being invested in the work of private companies to do more and more testing. It's a busted flush. And the, so that's, that's one issue. This is a for-profit industry, and it hasn't had any beneficial impact on working schools. On the contrary, it's demoralized kids, it's stressed mm -hmm. out their families, and it's demoralized and disengaged uh, teachers who have gone from being seen as properly qualified, you know, passionate professionals into service agents, the testing companies. The second thing is it was never going to work because the systems they've been using are these sort of mainly these bubble tests, you know, you can, multiple choice tests. Well, they don't even begin to reach into the nuances and uh, and complexities of how children learn or what they should learn. So I'm not against testing, but I am against this testing industry and how it's reduced this rather beautiful complex process of learning to a, a series of, uh, of hurdles to be jumped uh, intermittently. And the consequence of it is that it's actually turned a lot of people off education. That's why we get so many kids leaving it. They just can't take the stress anymore. And more and more of them are being medicated uh, for apparently losing interest in it. And who could blame them? You know, mm. I mean, I have a whole chapter in the book on, well, a whole section on the problems of medication in schools. So I don't want to kind of sloganize it here, but I do think often that children's behavioral and attentional problems in schools are being misdiagnosed. It's not that they necessarily have any kind of learning disorder. It's, it, it's equally likely in individual cases that they're just turned off by the whole process and they're being forced to sit down when they need to be getting up and moving around. And that brings back the arts. You know, we're cutting out playtime, we're cutting out the arts, all of yeah. these things that would help the child get fully embodied again. We're cutting that all out for these standardized tests. Well, can I ask you, Ali, I mean, and, and, and people listening maybe, how much time did you spend outdoors playing when you were a kid? Oh, so much. But, Sir Robinson, I got to tell you, I went to a magnet uh, arts elementary school. Yeah. And it, I can't imagine going through my childhood without dance. It no. Sa I mean, it saved me in so many yeah. ways. And it was so... How, how did it save how did oh it my save you? God! I I knew I was special when I would go into Miss Brown's dance class. I knew mm -hmm. I was special, and it was a way that I could have big feelings and express them, yeah. and not be shamed or told to be quiet. There was a lot of change happening. Yeah, 
and dance was my through line. And I did it every day at school. And then I was in the, the we had this little like performing company <laughs> um, yeah. in the elementary yeah. school. And it was so beautiful. And then I ended up, yeah. I went to a private school for middle school. It was totally miserable. It was a lot of sitting at a desk. And then I ran away basically and got to go to a performing. I didn't run away. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> I ran away from the private school system and went to a performing and visual arts high school. That was also another public magnet school where we got to where I was in the theater department. And it was that same thing again where I got to feel special. Like I had found mm-hmm. a thing that I was good at that I could work on every day. And that, yeah. especially in high school, because it was kind of like fame listeners, if you have, you know, and Beyonce went to my school. We always have to brag about that. But <laughs> basically in this public school system, we had four hours a day of theater, you know, and then there was also music and dance that other students were involved in. And then we would take our English together and our history together. But it was always really cool how the teachers were able to incorporate the arts in yes. studying history, um, in studying literature. And you could see everyone kind of light up when that happened. There wasn't a single student at that school that didn't have a passion for something. And I yes. look back at that time and I'm just like, oh, I am so grateful that I got to experience that. Anyway, that's well, my. You know, that's, 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 that's wonderful. That's wonderful. That it's exactly but, what I'm talking oh, about. Oh, the, but to the, go back the, to elementary you, school, yes, play. We got to play. <laughs> that was your question. Well, yeah, no, but, but but I'll come back to that play in a minute. But but that you see that the fact that you were special and and all children are special in their own different ways, and and if you bleach out those differences and subject people to the same kind of homogenized form of education it's inevitable some people will probably do fine by it because that may suit their temperament that's a great point because my husband also last night was like well i was really good at standard eggs testing it worked out for me and i'm like you shut up no one wants to hear that (laughs) (laughs) no but great good for him because you know the system doesn't fail everybody uh and and some people just play the game and they're good at the game and they have a particular view and and a take on it and they do fine and uh you know it, it if 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 it weren't the case, it wouldn't have survived in any form. Mm. But the fact is, it's getting more constricted, it's getting more restrained, and it doesn't suit often uh, the majority of kids. And and this isn't about only about the arts. I mean, for example, the I, I did this book, as you say, a few years ago called The Element: How Finding Your Passion Changes Everything. And I spoke to scientists, I spoke to people in business, I spoke to engineers, you know, chefs, all kinds of people about how they discovered this path in their life that has proved to be so fulfilling for them. And, you know, if you have a narrow curriculum, it, it tends to marginalize the talents of very, very many people. Mm. And, you know, the, and some people, in the way that you came alive in the dance studio, some people come alive in a chemistry lab. You know, some people come alive on the sports field. And it's recognizing that critical point that human life is not driven by conformity, it's driven by diversity. I'm not talking about conformity in the sense of, you know, people not behaving properly in public places. I'm talking about the, the human life is as diverse as all other forms of life on Earth. We're as diverse as you know the, the plants in the fields in terms of our talents and our interests. And one of the analogies I make, as you said earlier about the, the organic and the industrial um, versions of farming, is that we've created systems of education which are based on this a, a kind of sense of homogeneity. You know, it's like in farming, you know, these vast fields of single crops, which are 
only kept protected by chemical pesticides and made to grow rapidly through chemical fertilizers. And they, they have a big output, they have a big yield, but they're destroying the planet. You know, apart from that, they're being fine. But, but, you know, organic, or, or, and giving or, us cancer, just, but whatever. Yeah, well, hey, whatever, you know, you know it's, it's not all bad. You know, but organ, organ, organic systems of farming, which have equally good yields, incidentally, uh, are based on natural rhythms and on diversity and on e- ecological principles of, of self-improvement. And that's what we need. And it's, it's what we look for in our families. It's what we look for in the homes that we choose to live in if, if we have a choice. And, and so, so, yes, I used to spend, I was once professor of arts education, and I have seen firsthand, you know, people say to me sometimes, you know, about, ask me about my theories. I said, they're not theories. You can theorize about them. Uh, but I've seen it firsthand in my own life and experience, profession and personally, that if you put people in the right conditions which appeal to their natural talents and interests, they blossom. They just do. And, and not just in the thing they're good at, but in, the th- in everything else, because their confidence goes up. They get better across the board if, if they feel that what they're good at is being valued and encouraged and, and stretched in the right way. Yes. One of the big problems with standardization is it doesn't really raise standards. It goes to the lowest common denominator. You know, there's not, I used to be on the board of the Royal Ballet in England. I've never seen anybody work harder than those dancers in those studios getting ready for performances and getting physically toned. It's not just a physical activity. It's, it's a mathematical one. It's a musical activity. It's, it's a design activity. You know, when people criticize dance, they simply don't know what they're talking about half the time. They've not had any real exposure to it. You know, these are highly rigorous disciplines. You know, we've just come through the Winter Olympics. I mean, these kids who've done so well at the Winter Olympics didn't get where they were by sitting down, studying angles of inflection. They went there by leaping, leaping off mountains and making mm. it work, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, that's, what, that's what I mean about looking at this thing holistically as seeing the connections uh, between the, the physical, the emotional, the social, and the spiritual, and the cognitive. You know, human beings aren't divided into separate comp- compartments where we can just educate one bit of them. Um, and in fact, attempts to do it fail because if you sit kids down all day and just try to drill them on uh, with information, eventually they start to react against it. Some people are fine. Some people are naturally studious that way, but not everybody. And in fact, I'd say not the majority. No, I think I, and I love what you talk about um, in the book regarding ADHD and ways that you could um, support your child perhaps without yeah. medication. So there's the ADHD kids and then there's the kids like me that just end up with like, a, you know, we can sit there and we can do well, but we just end up with like an anxiety dis- disorder. <laughs> so um, because that would be the other side of that too. Like, yes, there are a lot of us that can get through the system, but it's not benefiting us and then it's not benefiting society. And I love everything um, that you share in here. And moms, you're going to get it. You're going you're gonna to order it today, Right. Uh, you've spent so much time and effort in making this information and these studies available to all of us. There is so much more in this that we don't have time to get to today. But thank you so much, Sir Ken Robinson. I really appreciate the time you've uh, shared with us. It's been a real pleasure, Ali. It's lovely to talk to you. And thank you so much. Of course. So listeners, uh, Atomic Moms always has a mom bomb. It's a it's something to think about, to chew on. Uh, it's a 
it's inspiration or a good kick in the ass. So today it is going to be this great line from this book. Sir Ken Robinson writes, we are embodied creatures and dance is part of the pulse of humanity. We are embodied creatures and dance is part of the pulse of humanity. So mamas, your atomic mom's homework this week, dance with your kids. Like, just dance in the kitchen with your kids. Follow them. Mirror them. See what their pulse is like. Like, just express yourselves in the silliest ways possible. Like, I want you to do it where if a neighbor was walking by with their dog and they looked in the window, they would record it and put it on YouTube. Okay? (laughs) That's your assignment. All right, listeners. Until next week, trust in your goodness. Live out your greatness. Rock on, Atomic Moms. 